you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. Wow, my voice is cracking. i got to go back to my opera lessons and see what's going on there. Welcome to the big show, my family and friends. We certainly appreciate you guys being here. You guys are the greatest audience in the world, the smartest people. 14 years and 1,400 episodes. If you guys aren't the damn smartest people by now, We'll go back and listen to all 1,400 episodes. We're putting out two to three new episodes a week. Simon Schuster and Harper are auto-booking all of our uh, podcast guests, and we have uh, all sorts of other great, brilliant CEOs and minds that are on the show. Uh, so if you're not sharing the love, the knowledge, the experience, the the glow, the glow that comes from all that knowledge that we disperse, uh, boy, uh, why are you holding out on people? Really? Do you hate people? Like what, who hurt you? No, I'm just kidding. People share the, share the love. Uh, go to goodreads.com for chess, Chris Voss, youtube.com for chess, Chris Voss, linkedin.com for chess, Chris Voss, the big LinkedIn newsletter. We're over on TikTok at Chris Voss one and the Chris Voss show podcast. And to join the mailing list, go to chrisvoss.info. You can check that out over there as well. Today we had an amazing mind on the show. He's got a brilliant new book that's coming out. And we'll be talking about his thoughts on Web3. Uh, Alex Tapscott is on the show with us today. Uh, his book comes out September 19th, 2023. It's called Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. So we're going to be getting into all the deets, as the kids like to say, the deets on all that stuff and finding out more about his background and what goes into it. Uh, he is an entrepreneur, writer, and seasoned capital markets professional focused on the impact of emerging technologies such as blockchain and cryptocurrencies on business, government, and society. He's the managing director of the Digital Assets Group at Nine Point Partners, one of Canada's leading investment firms, eh? With more than eight billion dollars in assets under management nine point launched the world's first carbon neutral bitcoin etf which reached over 400 million in aum and he's the co-author of the critically acclaimed non-fiction bestseller blockchain revolution translated into more than 19 languages and has sold more than half a million copies worldwide his other books financial services revolution and digital asset revolution were published in 20 and 22 respectively welcome to the show Alex. how are you chris i'm great it's an honor to be here it's an honor to have you as well, sir. Congratulations on the new book. These are always fun. Give us a .com or wherever you want people to find you on the interwebs. Yeah, absolutely. You can learn more about me and the book, www.alextapscott.com. Pretty simple one to remember. Uh, the book's available for pre-order uh, through that website and also on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever you get your books. There you go. And now what is this internet you're speaking of? What is this about? Is that the tubes in the sky that one politician said one time, there's like some pneumatic things up there and the data goes back and forth? Yes, a series of tubes, I think, is what he, <laughs> what he described it at, uh, uh, back in the 1990s. You know, yeah. that, that, was, uh, that was during a time when on Capitol Hill, there are 100 senators and only one of them had an internet connection, and that person was Ted Kennedy. And, and I can only speculate as to why he needed an internet connection. Well, I mean, uh, he's, he had order of booze. 
<laughs> or, uh, I got to or, uh, order the, that's my worst Ted Kennedy ever. I had that. We had the governor of Boston on and did my Ted Kennedy impression for him. And he said, uh, I don't like you anymore. Uh, no, he, did. he was very gracious, but, uh, so give us a 30,000 foot overview. We're beating up on Ted Kennedy. What kind of yeah, show? I, I wasn't I really? beat up on Ted no, Kennedy. Too soon. Anything, too he was, soon. uh, he was ahead of the game with that with his internet connection back back when everyone thought it was a series of two. I mean, maybe maybe he was looking for excuses on uh, people you drove off a bridge. Anyway, enough okay. to right. up jokes. So, so um so my new book is called Web Three, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. And it's about how um, the web and with it the internet are really entering a new era. And it's helpful just to understand a little bit of history. So the internet is a little different from the web. The internet itself was actually created in the late 1960s as an initiative of the Department of Defense. And it was designed actually to be a decentralized network that would stay up and running in the event of a nuclear attack. Mm. And it stayed basically that way for 20 years as a tool used by governments and people in academia and scientists and so forth. It wasn't until the 90s with the invention of the World Wide Web and the web browser that the web and the internet itself became a, a, a commercial tool, a tool that like people like you and I, you know, were using. And you know, people might recall the early web, um, what we now call the dot com era, um, as like a, a period of, of dial up, right, where you had to you know hold one of your one of your phone lines, um, and uh, so that you could you know download images at you know ten. Uh, you know, 10 or 15 kilobits per second. And uh, the early web, web, web one, as we call it, um, was static and was primitive. It was primarily a way to consume information. In the 2000s, the dot-com um, crash and the creation of some new technology uh, created the conditions for a new web, what we call web two. And this new web or the read-write web um, became a tool for people to communicate and collaborate and share information online. So like the dominant business models of Web2 are social media companies. And although individuals, you, me, and every other person in the world, you know, creates all the value that contributes uh, to the communities that we create online, you know, we upload mm -hmm. data, we upload our thoughts, we upload photos and images and so forth. Most of the value is captured by big platforms. So Web3 promises a major rethink of the web. Instead mm -hmm. of an internet controlled and dominated by big platforms, this new decentralized web um, and it allows individuals to own their own data, own their own identities, and to own their own virtual goods and digital assets. And that is, that's a big leap forward that's going to transform a lot of different business models and marketplaces. There you go. Uh, I, here I thought World Wide Web was, uh, you know, when the Indians had the, uh, the smoke thing, you know. The uh, the whole that they they get on the thing yeah the Native Americans uh, I'm gonna have to do some editing on this show uh, I already have notes <laughs> let me make a pause here <laughs> sorry about that Alex I'm gonna cut the Kennedy joke and this one and the Indian comment uh, gotta say PS or PR or whatever the fuck it is so uh, we'll cut those um, so. What do I want to do with the Web3? There's a question I have, and I'm not sure if it's the right place for it. Anyway, this is all good edited, clearly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so let me ask you this. I've heard rumors that, uh, or not, I, I, let me recut that. So let me ask you this. I've heard people, you know, I've seen people arguing on the internet, you know, namely uh, Anderson, uh, what is it? Uh, the big, Anderson the, Horowitz. Anderson Horowitz, Jack from, of yeah. course, Twitter, Elon Musk. You know, and there's there's been a big argument that maybe there are certain VCs that are kind of more interested or have control or maybe big investments or I'm not really sure what it is because that's why you're here as a specialist. Um, but I've heard all these arguments about it. And uh, can you clarify some of that, uh, you know, kind of 
information that we're hearing as to what's true, what's not, and what Web3 maybe really is. Sure. Well, I think the argument is primarily a semantic argument. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there are people who are uh, pushing the terminology Web3 while others are pushing the terminology crypto. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think, honestly, that the two are, frankly, not, not as far apart <laughs> as a lot of people might think. I mean, I view crypto assets, um, you know, scarce digital goods that individuals can hold and then send peer to peer and may have other utility as an important area of Web3 development, uh, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, email um, is an important component of the Internet or, you know, the web browser is an important component of the Internet. But the Internet itself, this canonical Internet, um, you know, is, a, is an umbrella term that captures more than just any single use case or application. So, you know, I, I try not to get involved in those kinds of debates. I mean, sure, there are mm -hmm. some VCs who have made investments into Web3 startups. Um, mm -hmm. I think that the, the allegation is that, you know, they control a lot of the, the these, these entities and they're trying to, like, pump their... Uh, investments, but if you actually dig down and look at the holdings, you know their positions are, are relatively small, and uh, mm -hmm. I think most of the growth of this industry, which in, in which I would also, by the way, include Bitcoin and Ethereum and the you know the other very large and established protocols, as being all being part of Web three. Um, you know the the helpful way to think about Web three is as the read, write, own web. So what that means simply is that the Internet is not only a tool to consume information, to read. It's not only a tool to uh, for computation, for us to upload data and to program the web. That's right. But it's also got a new um, framework for us to actually own digital goods. Now, Bitcoin is the first example of Web3 in action, in my opinion. Now, Jack and others might disagree because they view Bitcoin as being superior to other assets. And that's a different argument. But basically, the idea that Bitcoin allowed us to program digital scarcity for individuals to hold their own money, to be their own bank, to send that money peer to peer to anyone around the world, regardless if they had a bank account or an identity, as a clear proof point and use case for uh, blockchain, the underlying technology and Web3 in action. But what's important to understand is that Bitcoin is not is the beginning of it, Bitcoin is the beginning of the story. It's not the end of the story. You know, in the same way that in the early 1990s, the killer app for the Internet was email. But eventually we got the web browser, we got the mobile web, we got smartphones, we got the cloud, we got, you know, geospatial technology, you know, apps like Uber and Airbnb. We got all these new in innovations and email remains critical. You know, we communicate over email. Email is a protocol that billions of people use and it's enormously valuable. If you could put a value on it, it would be valuable um, in the same way that Bitcoin is and will continue to be very valuable. But it's not doesn't mean it's the only in innovation <laughs> of this whole space. Um, it just simply means that it's proof that this technology works. There you go. Now, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things today, so people don't tune out on me. We're going to talk about the metaverse. We're going to cover chat GPT. We're going to cover crypto. We're going to cover, uh, what have I missed here? Web, Web 3.0 we're talking about now. I think there's another uh, thing that uh, is big, VR maybe, AR or something, yeah. uh, the new Apple stuff and, and uh, web metaverse headsets. Um, so stay tuned for all of it. We're going we're gonna to get the deets on it all. Hi, folks. Here's Foss here with a little station break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. We'll resume here in a second. Uh, I'd like to invite you to come to my coaching speaking 
and training courses website. You can also see our new podcast over there at chrisvossleadershipinstitute.com. Over there, you can find all the different stuff that we do for speaking engagements, if you'd like to hire me, uh, training courses that we offer, and coaching for leadership, management, entrepreneurism, uh, podcasting, corporate stuff. Uh, with over 35 years of experience in business and running companies as a CEO, and be sure to check out Chris Voss Leadership Institute.com. Now back to the show. Um, so this is pretty interesting with Web3. You talk about it in your book where, uh, you know, like you mentioned before, we move from the read-only read web to the read-write web. And, um, and you frame it as the Web3.0 or Web3 is the read-write-own web. And, and tell us about what that means. Sure, absolutely. So in the book, um, we talk about different transformations. And the first mm -hmm. major transformation is to assets themselves. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, assets are foundational to all economic activity. It's how we represent value in every in every sector and every business. And assets are going through um, their biggest reinvention in centuries, potentially. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in the early uh, period of human history, when uh, I, 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 this is this is worth it, the payoff is worth it. So bear with me. So like in the in the feudal era, um, the main asset was land because the main industries were farming, logging and mining. Right. And so the most the wealthiest people in the world were the people that owned the most land. Wealth was also highly concentrated during that period. Um, you know, a catalog of who owned what in uh, medieval England basically showed that the king and his um, favorite lords owned about three quarters of the wealth and the rest of the people owned basically nothing. In the 17th, 18th and 19th century, we got the early stages of the industrial age and re that really kicked into gear in the 19th century with the invention of like industrial capitalism. And so there, the most important assets became not land, but industrial plants and equipment, but also this new invention, stocks, bonds, uh, you know, bills of lading, paper assets. So sort of uh, abstractions of value. So Cornelius Vanderbilt was not the richest guy in the world because he had the most farmland. He was the richest guy in the world because he had the biggest share of public companies that owned railroads and owned steam engines and owned um, steam ships, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was the way in which we kind of kept, like wealth was created. Even today, who are the wealthiest people in the world? Well, it's Elon Musk and it's Jeff Bezos and others. They Their wealth is primarily in shares of public companies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as the economy became more complex, the assets that represent value became more abstract. We're now entering this new period where we, our economy is becoming more complex, it's becoming increasingly digital. And now we have a new digital toolkit to express value. And that is this thing called tokens, right? So in the same way that as the economy becomes more digital and becomes more abstract, it makes sense that assets are becoming more abstract, but also tokens give us new ways for assets to become more democratized, for individual internet users to become individual internet owners and to participate more fairly in the value that they create online. So a token, you know, a lot of people confuse Bitcoin and crypto and tokens and all these other terms, right? But yeah. fundamentally, you can just think of a token as a container for value in the same way that a website is a container for information. So oh. a website, a website can be anything, right? Like it can be a podcasting studio. It can be, um, uh, it can be, you know, where you get the news, where you get the weather. It can be a social media site. It can be how you get your health records. It can be, you know, where you get the sports scores, whatever. It's a it's a tabula rasa for information of any kind, photos, images, video, uh, text, you name it. In the same way that the internet, that the website is a container for information, a token is a container for value. And it can be programmed to contain 
anything of value, money, financial assets, art and collectibles, what we you know commonly call NFTs. Uh, it can be used to contain shares of a company, um, other forms of financial assets, uh, even votes in an election or IP or other you know uh, scarce assets. It's something that is infinitely programmable. And once you put wrap your head around that basic concept, you realize that the sky is effectively the limit on what tokens can do in the economy. There you go. It's and and you know one thing you talk about is this is more about giving people their own in individual identities. I mean, uh, now is that is that with Web three more so, or I know with technically Web two. Or you correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just gonna work off my assumptions here. Let me make that clear. Um, you know, people kind of became a brand. You know, like people on Instagram. You know, everywhere I go, I'm a brand. You know, ChrisVoss.com. You know, whatever. I don't have chrisvoss.com. That got away from us early on. Uh, chrisvoss.net, the Chris Voss show. Uh, you know, I have Chris Voss LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all the Chris Voss is pretty much on social media, uh, except for TikTok. Damn, I'm Chris Voss one. I got behind on that one. Um, but that's my identity. Like people, people go, hey, man, there's, that's the dude and stuff. Uh, and I think that might have been Web 2.0, was it? But, and now how is it going to be even maybe more so on Web 3.0? Yeah, it's great. I mean, your examples illustrate um, the model of how Web2 worked, which mm. is that there's a virtual me out there and there's a virtual Chris Voss out there. Mm. And, um, you know, that Chris Voss exists across many different platforms. Yeah, there's um, two of them, too. <laughs> really? Well, that, that makes things harder. It's worse, yeah. yeah. I hope he's not that you're evil twin or something. Uh, uh, no, but he did hijack our brand in 2016. So, <laughs> but that's another story. Brutal. Sorry, I digress. Well, there's, there's a Web3 solution to that as well. But the thing <laughs> about the virtual you is it's not owned by you, right? Um, oh. It's owned by Instagram. It's owned by LinkedIn. Oh, that's Twitter. right. Uh, it's owned by all these different platforms. And you provide all this data. You provide mm -hmm. the social net, the social graph. You provide the content to all those platforms. And in exchange, you get uh, you know access to a free service. Maybe you get to build your brand and your network. But the actual value of your um, of your brand, the data that helps to drive advertising revenue to those platforms, you actually don't really own or participate in it. Yeah, I don't get any checks for that. Exactly. I, mean, YouTube, I get checks from YouTube. Some, and, you know. some creators, yeah, well, exactly. Like on YouTube and other platforms, creators are receiving some compensation. But in general, the bargain of Web2 is you provide all this data and we'll provide you with a free service. And it's, mm -hmm. a, it's, a, it's a trade off we made implicitly without even really thinking about it. But over mm -hmm. time, I think a lot of people are viewing it as a Faustian bargain, you know, a deal with the devil where, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're providing all this information about ourselves, which we can't monetize and might undermine our privacy and might even lead to identity theft, as you've described it, right? Yeah. So, so the Web3 solution is one where basically, you have um, a wallet. It's like a secure vault. And in that vault mm. is all of your digital goods. And those digital goods can include things like Bitcoin and it can include art and collectibles, but it can also include um, attributes of yourself, elements of your reputation and your identity. And that information wow. is information that you control and you own. And only mm. you can decide how it gets used, where it gets used, and if it gets monetized. And if it gets monetized, then you can get compensated for uh, the use of that data. So there are several different companies and brands that are exploring um, how this might work in practice. You know, a good example would be, you know, a consumer brand that wants to use your data to sell sneakers. Well, you know, if that data is used, maybe you get discounts on your next pair or something like that. So, um, and, and that's something that you would have to provide consent in order to get act to, to, for the company to get access to. Now, this is something that you know, um, applies to consumer businesses, but it's also something that is more fundamental to the next big challenge 
uh, for humanity, and that is around artificial intelligence. I'll stop okay. there, a follow-up question on that, because uh, people think of Web3 and crypto and, and artificial intelligence as being distinct realms, right? They're separated oh. from each other, but in fact, they're, they're quite interlinked. Let's get into AI then, because, uh, and this will end up on the AI podcast to uh, plug folks for the AI podcast. Um, the, uh, you know, we've seen ChatGPT just explode. I have friends that are addicted to it. They can't get off it. It's like early Twitter, basically, for that. Yeah. And uh, so what, what's your vision as to how that's going to play out? And, and of course, like you said, as, as, as you mentioned, it's not, it's not, it's not different. It's, it's all part of the same big vision. Well, I mean, the idea of ChatGPT is that, you know, a large language model processes, you know, reams and reams and reams of data, human speech, text, and so forth. And from there mm -hmm. is able to, to predict or anticipate how to answer questions and to create content. So, you know, chat, we used to think of AI as something, some sort of like raw compute power that could, you know, process, uh, you know, huge amounts of data information. Uh, but actually, you know, AI, as we, as it exists today, is mimicking um, human expression and human behavior. So, you know, AI, like ChatGPT and these other large language models, aren't just, you know, um, d figuring out, you know, orbital patterns of, of, of stars and planets, uh, which is what we think of computers as doing, but they're also writing poetry, writing um, sketch comedy, you know, they are writing screenplays, they're creating art, uh, or, or not, depending on your perspective, but they're creating... <laughs> They're creating visual visual representations of things, which, in my view, can be quite you know striking and and, uh, and quite stunning. But it's all derivative. It's all derived from um, things that have come before. So it's you know human ex human writing and human art and human expression and human graphic design and all that other stuff. And so you know it's not doing anything original um, necessarily. So what's happening is that in order to get access to to create a large language model that creates you know, a lot of useful, valuable outputs, you need a lot of inputs, you need a lot of data inputs. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of questions right now about if these large, large language models are actually using um, data without the consent of the people who provided that data. You know, what is the, what they call the provenance? What is the origin of all this information that's getting fed into the machine? And also how reliable is it? You know, what is the veracity of this information? Chat, yeah. What's so funny about ChatGPT is the only thing it seems to do really, really well all the time is creative stuff like write poetry. If you actually give it like a math problem or ask it to answer a factual question, a lot of times it gets it wrong because really? the information, yeah, the information going in is sometimes really useless. Um, there's a really funny case of a lawyer who basically had ChatGPT write his entire argument in front of the court, and then he didn't bother to check the data that fact ChatGPT was using. The thing was absolutely riddled with errors, and he had to basically admit in front of the judge that he had had AI plagiarize his uh, his uh, you know brief or whatever. <laughs> And he might be. He might lose his law license. He probably will. He they're probably not, they're not happy with it. We should, follow, we should look at that up. Actually, um, so yeah. anyway, so what has this got to do with Web three and, and um, the intersection with AI? Well, for one, if individuals control their own data and, and they're the ones who provide permission for how it's used, then they they can provide permission and um, authorization for large language models to use their data. Number one. Number two is that if they do provide it, they can actually receive compensation for it. So you know, a really good example would be a platform like say Reddit. So uh, Reddit. Uh, recently announced that it's jacking up the fees for third-party developers to access its API. 
And the argument is basically, you know, it costs a lot of money to, to uh, provide access to these APIs and, you know, Reddit ought to be getting paid for it in some way. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the ways that they could compensate it is basically for individual users who are providing all this, like Reddit is like a goldmine of large language model, um, you know, data. It's all this people talking about stuff constantly and providing facts and data and opinions and so on and so forth. What if you had a model where instead of jacking up the price of the API, you simply pass through uh, whatever benefit there was to the individual users? What if they uh, received a token that allowed them to, to get paid fairly for the value and data that they're creating. So you have ways for both proving the provenance and also ensuring the content creators get paid fairly. The, the best, an easy analogy or way to think about this is like imagine if all the data, you know, imagine it's like a literal piece of data on a piece of paper. It going into the machine, imagine it's a literal machine, has a watermark and that watermark says who owns it. And every time it goes through it, it scans it and sends a payment back to the person. That would be prohibitively expensive and complex with existing payment tools, but it would be easy to implement with a token. So in order, if we want chat, if you want these large language models to continue to get reliable, useful data, and we want people to get paid fairly when their data gets used, the Web3 solution is the only way to do it. There you go. Uh, it's 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 uh, it's going to be an interesting world here coming up in the future. Trying to adopt to all the new things and and everything else. Um, the uh, the metaverse, you know, has basically flopped recently, and uh, Apple just announced their um, their new VR headsets or AR, I guess, more so headsets that technically aren't going to come out till next year. But it appears that if you know anybody who knows what Apple does, I mean, they resurrect the podcasts, they resurrect a lot of stuff, um, and they make it mainstream and, and popular. Although I don't know for what is it, five thousand dollars or thirty five hundred bucks a headset, thirty five thousand, thirty five hundred a headset. Um, I'm just adding zeros at this point. Um, <laughs> it, it's 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 a little harder, I think, to go mainstream. It becomes kind of an elitist product for people that have money, and so I don't know. I imagine it'll it'll set a foundation, but. Uh, they kind of did the old trick, Guru. They we always talk about technology of the pioneer gets all the arrows. So they let Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook take all the arrows, and yeah, and uh, now they're doing that. What what do you see the future of that? Do you do you put any money in uh, in in that succeeding or VR and AR and all that stuff, uh, or is it still like a long ways out? I think that we're at, we're at an important inflection point. And I think that's actually true, Chris, for a lot of new technologies. Mm -hmm. You know, VR and AR, I mean, that's a an overnight success story that's been 50 years in the making. <laughs> you know, I don't know if people remember, mm -hmm. what was it called, that, the, the Nintendo headset that I got as a kid in the 1990s, um, you know, where you could play Mario Tennis. I mean, it was a dis disaster. It was a flop of, of a product. Um, because, you know, the technology was not ready for prime time. And even a lot of this Oculus stuff that Facebook has released, um, it's one of those things that's found product market fit with early adopters. You know, for example, gamers um, really like it because it creates an immersive experience, but mm -hmm. it's not a mainstream product. And if you look at other technologies, actually, that have become really kind of popular or feel like they're hitting that inflection point recently, they too have had decades of false starts and flame outs and bubbles and everything. That's true for AI, that's true for the internet of things and connected devices. It's true for uh, self-driving cars. You know, remember five years ago, everyone was talking about, oh, in five years, you're gonna have a self-driving car. And when it didn't happen, we all forgot about it. But actually right now, self-driving cars are on the road in San Francisco. And I think in a few years are gonna be rolled, oh, yeah. out, rolled out nationwide. <clears throat> So, you know, there's nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come again, <laughs> to paraphrase the uh, the expression. And I think we're seeing that playing out across a lot of these new technologies. Now, having said that, there's this um, view uh, out there that, you know, the metaverse and Web3 
and virtual reality are all kind of jumbled up together and they're all like the same thing or they're all related topics. And it's true that they are related, but there are some really important differences. So first of all, you can have virtual reality without the metaverse. You know, if you put on a VR headset to say watch a movie or to, uh, you know, play a video game, you're, you're, you're in a self-contained environment, you're consuming content through a new medium. If for, for there to be you know, and then from there, there are virtual worlds. And that's the idea that, you know, you enter into a shared virtual space with other people who are also in that shared virtual space. And that virtual space is persistent and it's constantly rendered and it's constantly updated. And you can you can consume content, do transactions, have interactions and so forth. That's like what we consider, consider like virtual worlds. But for me, in order for a metaverse to reach its potential, in order for the metaverse to have a second life, if you will, you need to basically have the same kinds of conditions in a virtual world that exist in the physical world. And one of the big conditions that exists in our world is that we have um, control over ourselves and we also have rights over our property. So digital property rights can only exist in a metaverse with Web3 tools. So, for example, like if you use Facebook's Oculus headset and you enter their um, virtual reality, you're not really like creating a new version of our reality. You're entering Disney World. And, you know, Disney World is lots of fun. You know, you can go on rides, you can buy stuff, you can have experiences, but fundamentally it's all fake. And in the end, it all benefits one single company. Wait, Disney World's fake? You mean <laughs> Snow White isn't real? And those dwarfs? I don't know. You know, so so if you if we think of if, if we think people are going to spend more time online and more economic activity is going to move online and maybe we go from a two-dimensional web that we look on our phone to a spatial web that's integrated with this technology, if that's really where we're headed, and I think that the launch of uh, Apple's Vision Pro was a watershed then i think that we need to to have all the same rights in the real world that we uh in online that we have in the real world and the only way that's that that's possible is with web3's toolkit of things like tokens for example so instead of for example in instead of you know paying a 30 percent fee to the house every time you buy something in in you know mark zuckerberg's metaverse imagine you can transact peer-to-peer -peer. just like today if you you know go on to etsy or you go to a store or something and you buy something there's not a 30 percent tax necessarily paid to some single company um if you want to you know trade a piece of art an nft between different people you're not paying uh, a 50 percent uh, fee to the house which is what facebook had envisioned and even yeah. today you know i think that what what worries me is that um, a lot of these new virtual reality and augmented reality initiatives uh, like Vision Pro are going to end up just uh, perpetuating the same model that we have in Web 2, which is that, you know, you can get access to a rich array of services and you can have fun. But in the end, there's one single platform that's capturing most of the value. I think for, for it to reach its potential, we need to have those peer-to-peer -peer tools. There you go. I mean, I like to get paid for all my BS a whole lot more that I post, you know, all my dog photos on Facebook. Um, I like to get some money for that. But uh, well, uh, you you're broke, but but, you know, a peer to peer like a, a Web3 social uh, network um, would, would do something basically like that. So it's an interesting thing you know, to consider. It's like, how much are my little dog photos really worth? Like how much are my BS, how much is my BS really worth? I think you're you're, you're underselling yourself because you've got a great brand. Oh, wow. No, but 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 in but in all honesty, it's like, well, how how exactly do we monetize that? And so, in a lot of Web three applications, the way that they launch is with a token. And mm -hmm. uh, basically, the, the 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 earlier an adopter you are, and the more value you add to the platform, then the more of the platform you earn. So, you know, I was in university when Facebook came out, and um, 
you know, I was an early adopter. I created a huge social network on Facebook. I added lots of photos and content and I did it because it was fun and it was sort of like early internet, early web two stuff and it, it felt kind of innocent. But in retrospect, you know, it would have been nice if as an early adopter who helped them to achieve critical mass and build that network effect, that I had actually gotten paid for it in some way or gotten compensated, you know, if I had had ownership and governance rights. Well, that's basically how most Web3 applications are launching today. So if you're an early adopter of a Web3 application, um, you know, Uniswap, decentralized exchange, um, or, you know, Compound, like a lending platform, you know, the more you do on the platform, the more of it you earn. SX Network, wow. a peer-to-peer um, sports betting website, basically, instead of paying 5% of the house, every time you bet, you earn tokens that gives you a share in the actual entity itself. So, yeah, some really cool examples of how we're changing the economic model where internet users are becoming internet owners, owners of the platforms and services that they use. And that's something that's really important. Now, going back to your example of, you know, your dog photos and, and, uh, and your posts about what's going on in your life, you know, um, a lot of models are based on power users, right? So like there are certain power users like in, um, in video games. So most video games today use what's called a free to play model where basically 98% of gamers aren't paying any money, but 2% of gamers are paying a lot of money. Now you might say, okay, the 2% of gamers are the ones that matter the most. They're the ones that are the most valuable customers. And in a way, of course they are, but actually if it weren't for the 98% creating the environment and creating the rich, you know, gameplay of those worlds, the 2% wouldn't be there to begin with. So actually the people who, who aren't paying or the, or who aren't like the power users or the big value creators are still getting a ton of, or creating a ton of value. The same is true on platforms like YouTube, like big content creators may be creating tons of value, but they wouldn't be valuable if it weren't for their fans. Right? So the, the idea of web three is, can we create models where everybody who's contributing to the success of something, share somehow in the upside. There you go. Uh, it, you know, I remember back in the day on YouTube, I was valued as a creator and part of their creator program that was exclusive back then. And, you know, we made a lot of money off of it, but then they changed the rules on us. What, 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 with all these different new Web3 platforms you talked about, where, you know, we can get paid for our value. What's to keep this from happening again with Web.2, where they, where they're like, oh, oh you guys are making a lot of money now. We need some of that back. And, you know, my checks just go, woohoo. Yeah. Well, you've described the central difference between Web 2 and Web 3, which is that, you know, as a, you're, you may be a content creator on YouTube and you might be very valuable and you may get compensated for it, but you don't have any say in how YouTube as a platform is run, right? Mm -hmm. You have no governance rights. Um, the difference with Web 3 is that as an early, let's say you, in your example, you were an early contributor to YouTube and you were creating a lot of value for the platform. Well, if you'd earned a token, then that would have given you the ability to vote on matters that are relevant to that platform. Oh. So, if, so if they wanted to change their economic model and say content creators are going to get paid less share, well, you'd, ha you'd have the ability to have a say about that, right? Like right now, you're subject to the central bank of YouTube, so to speak, where you know they, de they devalue the currency, right? They're like, yeah. okay, all of a sudden your contribution is worth a quarter less than it was before. And then yeah. it just is what it is. So in the Web3 model, the idea is that, you know, the, con the, the contributors, the creators, the users, um, by earning a share in those platforms can actually have a say in how they're run. And by the way, they may decide that, you know, as a protocol, as a community, they don't want advertising. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe the goal isn't to make money. Maybe the goal is something else. It's user experience. And that would be up to them to decide how that works. I think that's why I like podcasting so much because we pretty much control it. Although, you know, if, if Apple wants to kick off their platform, you, you know, they do most of the, the traffic for, for, uh, podcasting. Um, 
but uh but for the most part we we kind of control our own destiny i think for the most part um other than if apple just decides to go bankrupt one day which won't happen but you can join other than you're entirely beholden to one platform <laughs> exactly yeah i mean i mean we're on pandora and iHeartRadio radio yeah. and spotify and all the places but the people who deliver a lion's share of the business are apple and evidently there's some good changes they have coming out uh coming down the pike uh let's get some let's get uh crypto in here yeah uh, now, full disclosure, we're recording this early in uh, June 21st, 2023. And so some of the data I'm going to give out here is applicable to then. The book comes out in September, which is when this will be released. So don't send me nasty comments about how uh, I got this wrong uh, in September. Um, but uh, right now, uh, Bitcoin pricing uh, at the beginning of the year was close to 15,000. Uh, on January 1st, it was 16,605 which was pretty much uh, running around its bottom there for a couple months. And now it's up to, as of today's date, June 21st, 30,172. It's almost doubled. It's within 2,000, I think, of doubling. So uh, given you know what's going on with Bitcoin, it seems to be doing a resurgence. But then there's also right now, and then also the time is applicable, the Justice Department just went after, I think, uh, Coinbase and Bit. Uh, who's the other? Who's the other big uh, exchange? I think you're referring it, to that the SEC, not the Justice Department. The SEC. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, we're we sued. Sued Binance and Coinbase. Binance. There we go. Yeah. Uh, so it, that's kind of interesting. What's going on? It almost seems like a real attack from, you know, it, we, as we mentioned earlier in the show. There's there's real democratization going on. That's actually kind of potential to appeal go, up upheave governments where uh you know it goes up against you know their ability to sell their currencies and use them i mean the the american currency the dollar is up until recently you know the top producing and i think it still is but there's some challenges that are going on with brazil russia and china um is is you know what everything is bought and sold on and it gives us our economic power in ways we don't even realize at least most of us so um what's your thoughts on cryptocurrency uh you know there's still the the ftx uh thing that has to process there's been a lot of fallout bankruptcies and creepy yeah. things going on with with the uh, uh, crypto bros, as they like to call them. Uh, tell me some of your thoughts on that. Maybe is it going to get better under uh, Web3 or maybe you might have more control from getting ripped off? Um, a lot of great stuff in there. So let me try mm -hmm. and unpack it one by one. I threw you the whole, the whole, <laughs> the whole kitchen sink there. Well, I'll tell you what, which is that because it's June 21st, anything I say about the price of any asset That's will, true, be, yeah. will be out of date by, by September. Um, and you know the book Web Three, the book I've written, um, is is less about you know making. It's not really at all about making price predictions or, or calls on the value sure. of any asset. It's more about some of these enduring themes and and ideas. Um, but I do think it is notable that that uh, you know we are seeing a resurgence today in the value of a lot of these different platforms. You know, right? There's a couple of things I can talk about, and I and I don't want to go into too much detail because it will be out of date. But right now, Bitcoin and Ethereum, to two largest platforms, collectively represent seventy percent of the market value of all mm -hmm. of all crypto assets. Um, that is a higher percentage than it has been in a few years. Um, there was a time, of course, when Bitcoin was the only game in town, and it was a hundred percent. Now. My expectation is over time, and probably by the time people listen to this, I could be wrong, that that share will have declined. And it will have declined for a couple of reasons. Number one, the number one reason why the, those names are succeeding more than others is because there's a lot of concern and uncertainty about um, the other 
assets, the other kinds of crypto assets that exist. Namely, um, based on the SEC's uh, suits against those companies, are those considered securities? And if they are considered securities, then are any exchange or any platform that does business in those acting as an unregistered securities exchange? My opinion is that the issue is complicated and that many or not, if not most of those assets are not securities. And the problem is that we've got a set of rules that were developed in the 1940s um, the test, the primary test the government uses to determine if an asset is a security uh, is a thing called the Howey test, which was used in a um, in a case involving an orange grove in Florida. So, you know, I'm not sure we should be applying the test of an or a, Florida, a Florida orange grove 80 years ago to uh, to a new novel asset class. It's got fundamentally different properties than than stocks and bonds and other financial assets. I, I think that in the next few months, we're going to see um uh, some more information come out of these suits, but also maybe a move from from lawmakers to try and define these assets, what they are, and more importantly, what they are not. So going back to what's the connection to Web3, well, a lot of the, these really awesome models that I've described, the idea of like a, a user-owned platform for sharing content or a user-owned market for, you know, wagering on sports or user-owned, you know, um, exchange for trading stocks and bonds, all of those things involve the the issuance of a token. And that token get, would get issued to people based on their contribution. So my view is that governance token is 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 a new thing. It's a new primitive, as they call it. It's a it's a new like fangled technology. It's not a stock. It's not a bond. It's not some traditional financial asset. But there's a lot of concern that the government's uh, position on this matter will lead to them concluding that basically every single crypto asset in the entire world. Um, with it maybe the exception of Bitcoin and Ethereum is a security. If that ends up happening, I think that would be really unfortunate for the industry. Um, you know, in terms of you know the the the, the suits themselves and the the approach the government has taken. You know, the 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 idea that this is all tech bros or crypto bros, all trading you know digital playthings, is not rooted in any fact whatsoever. In fact, crypto asset adoption, so the adoption of, say, Bitcoin or stablecoins as a payment tool, is far more popular in parts of the world. Uh, where people are typically underbanked or where the local currency is unreliable or where in general uh, incomes are a lot lower. So, for example, the company Chainalysis has ranked countries like Venezuela, Ukraine, um, Thailand, um, Nigeria and Kenya as uh, having higher adoption of this technology and this asset class than most Western European countries. For example, wow. in the United States, people of color are more likely to own Bitcoin um, and own crypto assets, as are people who are unbanked, so people who don't have access to a bank account. And it makes intuitive sense because if you need a way to move and store value, whether it's in it's in some some native asset like Bitcoin or just in dollars and what's called a stable coin, this is a very easy and simple way to do it. There are so many places in the world, Chris, where you know the majority of people have access to a smartphone and an internet connection, but they don't have a bank account. Well, this is an easy solution to that problem. So you know we have to read past the. There's a lot of um, you know um, takes in the media, which are frankly not rooted in fact. It doesn't mean we 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 put on rose-colored glasses, but we have to look at these things on their merits. And on, on their merits, I think that um, you know in both the, in both of these instances. Uh, both in the the need for greater clarity and also in the fact the facts of who uses this, we see a much brighter picture than what you read in the news. Wow, you know, <clears throat> I, there's been more talk about which is it's kind of ironic. And, and again, we'll cite the date here, June twenty first, twenty twenty three. You know, we we have to do that too because people who are watching the YouTube video ten years from now give me crap about stuff. Um, and you're like, did you look at the date on the YouTube video? Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> they're like, yeah, it's a uh, 99 cents on Amazon right now. It's not $500, Chris. And I'm like, that's a 10 year old video. So anyway, uh, the, uh, we, I'm seeing right now the, 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 I think it's the chat GPT CEO just basically, uh, was talking with Congress about how, yeah, we need AI laws, which is kind of interesting because it's the close the door behind you sort of totally. <laughs> strategy. <laughs> yeah, we've arrived. Now we need laws. We we robbed the bank, and now we need. It's kind of like what uh, it's kind of. We mentioned the Kennedy. It's kind of it's kind of like what uh, uh, John Kennedy's father. What was his name? Uh, John, Jack Joe Kennedy. Joe Kennedy. It's kind of like what Joe Kennedy did back in the in the uh, before the Great Depression uh, in the early Wall Street days. You know, he was the he was the guy who knew the best scams on the on the on Wall Street. And then uh, I think it was FDR appointed him head of the SEC when they formed it because he knew all the games. Yeah. Um, so well, it's kind of interesting to me that we need more regulation on that. We need regulation for uh, automation, AI, and we need you know all, all those sort of new digital stuff and what's disturbing is when you see these you know you mentioned earlier how ted kenny was the only one who had internet access it's just disturbing to see a lot of these um politicians they do these capitol hill interviews and they have no idea what's going on they're just like that's my login to facebook and the you know the google people are sitting there going are you serious like why are we here uh so hopefully we can figure out a way to bridge this gap well i think what you're describing uh, you're describing a couple of things. One is like the idea of regulatory capture, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, you know, big companies uh, get established for a big market position and then use their um, their proximity to power to create rules that prevent competition, right? Yeah. And that's something we've seen play out in, in lots of different industries. Um, the other thing you're describing is a so-called moral panic, where basically every time a new technology arrives, everyone like starts waving their hands in the air about how it's going to destroy jobs and destroy ah. the world and everything else. You know, we've just seen this play out since the, the dawn of the industrial age. Um, yeah. You know, you probably heard the, expre- the, the term Luddite. Um, you know, Luddites were people who were opposed to uh, me- oh, yeah. mechanized um, um, looms in, in mm-hmm. early industrial England. And they were worried that, you know, the introduction of industrial looms were going were gonna, to um, take jobs away from artisanal cloth makers. What ended up happening is that, um, you know, t- tens or hundreds of thousands of new jobs were created in the textile business because the technology improved productivity. Now, there there were some negative consequences of that. Like, it's not like people working in factories were getting treated all that well or or paid all that fairly. Um, But the the concern about jobs was unfounded. Um, But but, but it did bring us Kim Kardashian. So it was pretty much a downer. Did it? it We saw saw the looms turned out. Kim Kardashian went right to Kim Kardashian. Yeah, the mechanical, the, the loom. In, in Manchester, and then there's a straight yeah. line. Rotary you know that, phones, Kim Kardashian. Yeah, you know that meme of like the, the, the bricks, the guy like knocks over one domino and it hits a bigger one and a bigger one and a bigger one. <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. It's like guy guy eats a bat and then it's like dick, 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 pandemic. Yeah. You know, and the next thing's the Terminator. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. So moral panics. And so, you know, look, we've seen this before time and again. This isn't even the first moral panic for AI. I mean, we've had concerns mm-hmm. about AI forever. AI, AI is a big part of, of pop culture. I mean, the Terminator is, um, you know, um, probably like one of the most iconic examples of sort of um, the moral panic around artificial intelligence and computers in general. But you got to ask yourself, like, is there like a fixed amount of labor and fixed amount of economic opportunity? And if, if people don't, if machines do it, people won't? Or will machines augment human behavior? 
you know, in the same way that, you know, the invention of the car maybe put a few furriers out of business, people made horseshoes, but it also created a heck of a lot more jobs and prosperity in the process. You know, the invention of the computer, um, people thought that was going to reduce the need for data processors, people who handled punch cards, but it actually created way more jobs in data processing and also a whole bunch of other higher level, higher skilled activities that computers enabled people to do. And so like, I don't know how this is gonna play out. Maybe this time is different for real this time, who knows? Um, but I've got this feeling that, um, you know, the concerns that we have around a lot of these technologies um, is something that humans seem, seemingly have to go through every single time something comes along. And by the way, the same is true for Web3, you know, and, and, uh, and even the Internet. So in the case of Web3, the concern is th these are digital playthings. It makes it easier for people to speculate and gamble. And oh, and by the way, it's a tool that criminals use to avoid law enforcement. Um, yeah. You know, in the early 1990s, the criticism was this Internet thing, it's full of misinformation, it's full of ra radical extremists, and it's only used for spreading and disseminating pornography. And there was actually, speaking of senators, there was a senator, I can't remember his name, but he used to walk around Capitol Hill. He used to have one of his aides go to Ted Kennedy's office and print off a bunch of Internet pornography. And then he would carry this pornography around with him and waving, waving it in his hands. For saying, congressional oh, purposes, Yeah, of for congressional purposes only. Okay. And, you know, this is all they have on the Internet. It's just this thing for porno, you know, and it just like it just strikes me time and again that, you know, it's like sound familiar. Um, the moral panic we see around, you know, Web3. OK, so people got their own, uh, you know, a new way to, to move and store value. Yes, criminals will use it. But you know who else will use it? Hundreds of millions of other people. You know, That's we've true. got AI and this AI, you know, could it be used to, uh, you know, write hate fiction or something or, or do something awful yeah of course it could but it could also be used for something else you know isis uses email and whatsapp you know we don't we shouldn't judge the value or uh, of a technology on on who its end users are uh, we should view it based on you know um to in as a whole how how it's used by humanity and so i think that it's too early to say for things like ai but i get a feeling the concern here is overblown there you go. Well, you you may, you put it into context really well and box it up. I like the concept of 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 how uh, you know we have this fear of new technologies. I think one of our biggest problems too is stuff is moving so fast. Like it's like every week, I'm like, what do I have to keep up with now? I was getting really comfortable with the model that I had before, you know. And a lot of my friends are freaking out right now. They're you know a lot of them are in PR. Like, oh, God, we just got replaced. There's even people, you know, like, hey, podcasts are going to get replaced by AI, which is like, sure, go for it. I don't care. If, if you can be as funny as I am sometimes, uh, <laughs> go for it. Um, and, and so people have a lot of fear of this stuff. Uh, last, before we go out, let's, let's uh, get a squeeze in here for NFC um, or NFTs. NFCs? You know, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> NFTs. Uh, I don't know what's going on with me today. I'm just thrown off from the whole thing. Uh, I, it, I'm just overwhelmed by the technology. Um, so uh, what are your thoughts on that? That seems to have bombed hard. And uh, do you think there's a future in Web3 for NFTs? Well, I think, again, you got to separate what the underlying technology is from, you know, how it's priced in the market. I mean, like when the dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s, like we didn't call it quits on the Internet. You know, when when the when there was a panic in 1873 and a bunch of railroad stocks went under, didn't mean that the technology was not useful. It just meant that um, things had become overhyped and we needed a bit of a washing out. And I think that's what we've seen in NFTs. I mean, an, an NFT is fundamentally a uh, provably unique digital asset. So, you know, um, something like, say, a Bitcoin is not um, provably unique. Every Bitcoin has got the same sort of value. Right. So if you have a Bitcoin and I have a Bitcoin, 
uh, we can exchange them and we end up with the same amount of value. With an NFT, they're unique. And a lot of other things in our world are unique. You know, um, art is unique. Uh, your house is unique. Uh, you may, even if you live in a subdivision where every house is the same, the price is going to be different for every home because of certain differences, right? Um, lots of uh, agreements, business agreements, uh, contracts are unique. Um, you know, uh, patents, every patent is unique and so forth. So there's all these different assets in our world already that are provably unique. NFTs are a superior tool to use to uh, define um, something that is provably unique. I'll give you an example. So a piece of art. So um, traditionally in visual art, if someone sells a piece and then it gets resold, they have no way of capturing any value from the resale of that. Um, whereas with NFTs, you can program the asset so that if you create a piece of art and sell it to someone and they sell it again for something more than what they bought it for, it, then you actually receive a share of the proceeds. And so far, NFTs have paid out over $1.9 billion of royalties on $45 billion. Wow actions yeah so if you think about even the value of 45 billion dollars of transactions a lot of that is from um, original sales of assets and you mm -hmm. compare that to say like spotify so last year spotify paid out uh five billion dollars to creators in the form of of music royalties so in a single year nfts created more value for creators than spotify did for Holy example crap. yeah so um nfts are a really powerful um you know, new technology, new tool that we have to express something that is unique and valuable and to ensure that the owner gets compensated fairly for when it's sold and resold. And that's really all there is to it. So, you know, it's like a lot of people go out and blow money on art, Chris, and then that money becomes worthless. And like, you know, the same is true for NFTs. A lot of people blow, blew, blew a lot of money on a bunch of stupid, you know, cartoon characters and stuff like that. And those things became worthless. But that doesn't mean that, you know, um, visual art and paintings are not valuable or that some can't be or that, you know, something that is unique and scarce digitally can also have the same kind of value. There you go. So anything more you want to tease out in your book before we go? Well, I will simply say that, um, you know, the book is meant for anybody who, you know, cares about the future and wants to play a role in shaping it. Um, it's called, um, the, the the book is called Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier. Now, now some frontiers are um, for experts only or require Herculean strength or tons of capital. You know, if you're climbing Mount Everest or you're venturing to Mars, only a few people can do that. But sometimes and often the most bountiful of frontiers have been um, sort of driven forward by people who either by way of circumstances or because of ingenuity pushed them forward. And the good news about Web3 is that it's everyone's opportunity to push that frontier forward. You know, they said in the, in the 1990s and 2000s that uh, Silicon Valley was a tech Galapagos, meaning, meaning simply that it had the special combination of capital and talent and tech and government R&D that led to this unique and curious species of technology company that went on to kind of dominate you know, the industry. Um, all I can say is that this time is different. Uh, Web3 is emerging at a time when technology tools and capability and access and capital uh, are more distributed than ever before. And it's not going to, Web3 is not something that's going to be created in any single place. It's going to be created everywhere by everyone. And um, it's all happening kind of at once. So to paraphrase the movie. So, you know, they say if technology um, is uh, really something that makes the world flatter, Web3 is going to be a steamroller. And this new flatter world, the more connected world, is one I think that also might be more prosperous as well. And that more than anything is a reason that for to root for this technology and to understand it a lot better. And there I hope you, go. you check out my book as a result. Definitely do. They really should. Uh, Alex, it's been wonderful to have you on. Very insightful, and we'll see how this data holds up uh, 
uh, three or four months from now, we <laughs> maybe the whole world will end and it'll be a nuclear bomb and and like everything will have died technology wise by September nineteenth. Well, but hopefully it won't. If that's won't. true. Then data on a podcast will be the least of our worries. <laughs> that's true. And I won't have anybody writing comments on my <laughs> thing like you were wrong. So there you go. Uh, order up, folks, wherever fine books are sold. September nineteenth, twenty twenty three. Web three charting the internet's next economic and cultural frontier alex uh, give us a dot com too for you before we go so people can find you on the interwebs sure people can find out more at www.alextapscott.com and also you can follow me on twitter at alex tapscott post a lot of great stuff or at least i think it's great my mom thinks it's great uh, but lots of good stuff on uh, on web3 for people to check out yeah. there you go that's my mom's the only one who listens to the show so that's <laughs> Every day. In fact, I don't. I, I hate it when she listens because she'll give me suggestions. She's like, "You should not swear on the show," and uh, stuff like that. So, anyway, thank you, Alex, for coming on. Thanks to our great audience for tuning in. We certainly appreciate, it, guys. Go to Goodreads.com for Chess Chris Foss, YouTube.com for Chess Chris Foss, LinkedIn.com for Chess Chris Foss. See us on TikTok, Chris Foss One, and Chris Foss. The Chris Foss Show podcast on TikTok. There's two channels over there. And uh, also, if you want to be on the new news list of all the cool things that are coming out and the great authors we have putting out, go to chrisfoss.info. Chrisfoss.info. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe. And we'll see you guys next time.